Well, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we've been walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians together. And uh, I'll just remind you, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, he didn't call it 1 Corinthians, we called it that. This is the first letter we have of Paul to the church in the city Corinth. And uh, we are reading it, studying it together to see all that God spoke through him as he was talking to a specific church at a specific time with timeless principles and truth for his church today, right? So we have come all the way to chapter 4, verse 14, and that's where we're going to begin reading today. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and we're going to finish out chapter 4 today. It says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. And this is why I sent or have sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? What do we have here this morning? Well, we have simply a fatherly rebuke to the church. That's what this is. It is a fatherly rebuke. And uh, as we walk through this text this morning, I have uh, basically in our bullets that we're going to walk through just some bullets to help us understand what's being said, just the outline of the text together. As we look at verse 14 and, and we start to kind of digest what's going on here, we see at first that Paul brings admonition, not shame to them. That's the goal. That's the point. That's what he's doing. He wants to admonish them not to bring shame on them. Did you see that? It's pretty clear right up front, isn't it? He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So there's a distinction between the two ideas there, isn't there? There's a distinction to be made between one who is ashamed or bringing admonition and bringing admonition upon them, right? I'm either making you ashamed or I'm admonishing you, and these two things are different. There's a distinct reality between these two ideas. Paul wants one right now. He doesn't want the other. What does he want from them? To admonish them and not to bring shame upon them. Now, it's very interesting when you start to look at the different ways that Paul has talked about shame and admonishing them and I just want to look at one passage. I do have it on the screen. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but I do have it for you. It's 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. And the reason I have this for you is because he uses these two words together in the same context. I just want you to see it. What we're doing right now is we're just gaining our bearings on what Paul is saying through verses 14 through 21. And we want to know, 
What does he mean that he wrote these things uh, not to make them ashamed, but to admonish them? Look at how he uses these two words in 2 Thessalonians 3. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be, and the word is, ashamed. Same word we find, and you know what I mean when I say same word. I mean same word in the Greek, same word in the original. Uh, It says uh, ashamed. And then he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now that word warn is the same word translated admonish in our text today. Same word, okay? So the idea of admonishing someone then is to warn them, right? So Paul is saying to this church, just take notice of what's being said, Uh, If anyone among you in the church does not obey what is being said in this letter, take note of that person, mark them out, call them out by name, and have nothing to do with that person. In order that, he might be ashamed. Now, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So the two ideas are working together in partnership in this context, right? Uh, to warn him as a brother is basically the outworking of their shame upon them. And how did that shame come about? Can you just imagine a context? I hope that you can. Imagine a context where the scriptures say something very clearly, and there is a person among us who says, yes, I see, uh, but I will not do. I will not concede to what the scriptures have to say. You say, okay, take note of that person. Do you think that means personally or corporately? I think quite obviously it means corporately. So corporately, take notice of a person who is refusing to obey and do what with them? Have nothing to do with them. Wow. To what end, Paul? That he might be ashamed. Okay, so what should our shame do to him? What is the end result of the shame? The shame is a continual warning to him. That's how it functions. The shame is functioning to further warn him or admonish him. Do you see how that's working together? And so we're going to shame you, how? By publicly kicking you out until you come to terms with what the scriptures say and you are ready to submit to the scriptures and obey them. Then the shame will be lifted. Your public shame will be lifted and you will have heard the warning, and you will have bowed down in your heart to submission to God's word, and you will come back among us. That's the goal. That is the goal, right? See, it says, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So we're not saying, so you are not a Christian. We're saying, you may be a Christian, right? But what you're doing is not correct, and it cannot stand. And it must be reckoned with. We're not just going to let it go. That's how serious things were at that time. Now, contrast that with the modern church. This idea is absolutely foreign in most cases. You would say, but kick somebody out, that's mean. How mean is that? No, everybody can come, it doesn't matter. Is that what's being said here? So which do you prefer? I think we should just get this out in the open right now. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer to go along with what the scriptures say 
Or do you prefer to create your own standard for who is it who can be among us and who should not be? And right here, you're already, you've already made that distinction, haven't you? So you're saying that these people can't even walk in our doors? No, this is talking clearly about those who have attached themselves to the church. Membership. That's who these people are, members of the church. If you're here among us, you're not a member of this church, so thankful that you're here this morning. <laughs> Very thankful that you're here. In no way is this saying, so you shouldn't be here. Absolutely not. We welcome those people to come among us who are even skeptical of the Christian faith. Come and see what this is. Please, we want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only do we want you to hear it, we want you to see it at work. So please come. Now, just because you are here does not make you a member of this church, a person who has submitted to the leadership of this church and said, I believe like you believe. I am here, one among you, and now I'm going to submit myself to how the scriptures have arranged the church to be established with its own leadership in each individual church and its own members at each individual local church. I will submit myself to that. That's the model, okay? And they're saying if there is someone who has submitted themselves to that and they act like this, get them out. Why? So that he might be ashamed. Would you be ashamed if the whole church got together and said, listen, you're behaving or thinking in a way that you should not you've been approached by this you are not repenting of it you are not heeding the scriptures what the scriptures say for us to do now is to have nothing more to do with you so i'm sorry you are not welcome at this time all right that's pretty serious isn't it preliminary thoughts to let sit on your mind and on your heart right now that's a pretty heavy concept already, isn't it? What do you do with that? That's a good question. Now, that in mind, what is Paul saying to the Corinthian church? He says specifically, I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, but just to warn you. You see, he's saying to them, all these things I've been talking to you about, about your leadership quarrels and the divisions among you, he is saying to them, um, yes, not, not good, okay? Acknowledged that what you're doing is not good. But what we're doing right now is we're not saying you all need to be ashamed publicly and we need to shame you. He's saying, listen, I, I just want you to hear me. I'm not writing these things, all, all that has come beforehand, okay? All the 13 weeks or so that we've been in 1 Corinthians so far. He has written all this material so far about their leadership issues for what, to what end, for what purpose? that they might be ashamed? No, that they might be warned that what they're doing is not right and that they might change their behavior. That's the point. So uh, I do want to say and make the contrast right away that later in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to write about two things in a much harsher tone than what we're reading here. Now he says, now these things I'm not writing to shame you. These things all that has come before about the leadership issues. But listen to what he says in two other places. I have them on the screen for you. Uh, and I'm just referencing them. You can write them down if you like. Two things he brings out. Number one, settling disputes between believers through unbelievers. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise enough among you to settle disputes between brothers? 
So you go to the unbelieving world to settle disputes among you? It shouldn't be that way. And so he says this to what? To what end? To their shame. And then another thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So there are some who had the ignorance of the knowledge of God among them, and he's saying that's shameful. I am calling you out on that right now, shameful. So, although I bring these out to make a contrast, these things, chapters 1 through 4, he has written as a warning to them, not to shame them, but as a warning to them. And how is he doing it? In a loving way, right? Now, what does the word admonish mean? I'm going to sit on this just for a second. Hang with me. The question I have, and maybe you have right now, is why does there need to be such seriousness involved here? Why so serious about this stuff? Why so heavy? Why is this such a big deal? Does it seem like it's a big deal? I think it does. The desire is not to be unnecessarily harsh here by Paul, but it's to be genuinely concerned. You ever spoken to some way in a heavy tone because you were genuinely concerned for them? Has, is that true? And does your tone change when you are genuinely concerned for a person? Yes or no? Yes, it does. And as your tone changes and people acknowledge it and they see it, it communicates in a different way, doesn't it? So, what are we saying here? Is that if we have love for one another, which do we? Yes. Then we are going to be concerned for those we love that they might be doing what is harmful for them what is disobedient to their Lord. Would you agree? If those we love, which we all just agreed that it's us, we have love for one another, and someone among us is not doing what is ideal according to the scriptures, sometimes blatantly wrong, sometimes not ideal, right? Um, we have to wrestle through those issues, don't we? But either way, are we genuinely concerned? And if you are genuinely concerned, does it change the way you approach these things? Yes, it, only, it should, shouldn't it? So, we'll maybe say this in summary. We, we appeal to one another out of love with what? With gentleness. And if necessary, there comes a time when harsh rebuke is warranted for who? The obstinate. That's the best word I could use right here. You understand obstinate? Understand what this word means? I have a dog that's obstinate. Okay? It, stubborn and unwilling to do what is told. Unwilling to concede. Unwilling to submit. Obstinate. Headstrong. Right? Just, you're going to do what it is you want to do. You're not hearing anything. You're going to just do your own thing. Now, if we come out of love with gentleness, that's a, isn't that our goal, by the way? Isn't, isn't our goal that gentleness precedes harshness? Galatians 6, 1 through 4. 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of? Anybody know the next word? Gentleness. Gentleness. Now, sometimes we find that Paul is being gentle. Sometimes we find that Paul is being harsh. Do you agree? Sometimes we find that Jesus was being gentle. Sometimes we find that Jesus was being harsh. Do you agree? Sometimes it is necessary in order to hold people accountable to sin that we should primarily proceed and by, as a first step with gentleness. Do we all agree with that? Gentleness should precede any kind of harsh activity. That should be the way that we handle it. Do we always do that? You can be honest. It's okay. I, I will say it first. I do not always do that. And I'm being honest with you. I should. I should. And so should you, according to the scriptures. That we should first be gentle. But it doesn't mean that we are never harsh. Right? Who is to do this work of warning, admonishing? Who does that? Well, just leave it to the elders, right? They'll take care of it. Right? Some of you like that answer. That's not the right answer. But some of you are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, you could Do your thing, uh, you know? Uh, that's what you get paid for, right? Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, who does this work? Now, that answer is partially right, but it is not fully right. So let's just look at that just for a second. I told you I want to sit on this just for a second, and we'll move pretty quickly through the rest of our text this morning, okay? But let's just make sure we're all on the same page. So uh, while the elders do admonish, that's true, the church, uh, the church is to admonish itself in return, okay? So how it works is the elders are admonishing the church, warning the church, teaching the church, and as the church grows in their teaching, that they are built up in such a way that, it, it can, that the church can teach and warn itself. So there should be this progression that our, our teaching and our warning gets better and better over time. Don't you see how that should be happening? Maybe it's like we have a strainer. We were having to strain something the other day, okay? There's a couple different ways to strain things, aren't there? You can use, you, can use, you know, the there are a couple different words to these things. I call them all strainers. Uh, there are, uh, you can strain them through, you know, the metal uh, basket looking thing, right? You can strain them through that, or you can use what is evidently called cheesecloth, Okay, you can, you can use that. Now, that's a much, much more fine strain there, isn't it? But it's, it's almost like that in a sense. Where a mature church ought to have a much finer straining system. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? An immature church will be wide open and a lot falls through it without being strained. So, in other words, it may appear as though some churches are more serious than other churches. Why so serious about these things? I think we already talked about that, didn't we? Are you genuinely concerned for obedience out of love for one another? There is a serious nature to these things. And to make them not serious is to not see what the scriptures are saying. Although we're serious, does it necessarily mean that we are always harsh? No. Does it mean that we can be loving and gentle? Okay? 
So a couple of, a couple of passages here. I, I already read one of them, but 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14, I'm just, I'm, I'm pressing into the fact that yes, elders do this work, but then I'm also going to press into the fact that yes, the entire church does this work, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14 says, we ask you brothers, that is the whole church, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That sounds like a specific group of people, does it not? So who would that group be? That would be the elders of the church. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Now, who's that said to? The brothers, everybody. So while the elders do this work, yes, that's true. But then he talks to everyone and says, admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. Be patient with them. A weakness for me, that's a transparent truth I'm giving you. Being patient with those who are idle and weak and falling into these things over and over and over again, that's hard work, right? It's not that I am not patient with them, but I'm telling you that is a weakness for me that I have to be very aware of, okay? Maybe it is for you, maybe it's not. Maybe you're too patient. That could be you. You never are concerned. Oh, they'll be okay. Leave them alone. Don't be mean to them. He's fine. He's just like that. It's just how he is. Okay? Do you see how you could go to two extremes with this? Now, we are to admonish, everybody is, but we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Do you know those believers who are faint-hearted? Do you know what that means? You ever been faint-hearted yourself? Or weak? Or idle? Do you know what these words mean? Has this ever been true of you? And don't you wish that when you were rebuked, that it would have been out of gentleness and patience and love and concern? Sometimes you were just left alone completely. Right? Not good. Sometimes you were rebuked harshly when that wasn't necessarily called for. Either way, we need to be careful. Can we all agree that we need to be careful? And we need to be patient? But we should give ourselves to admonishing and rebuking and warning and teaching. If you are not giving yourself to that work in our church, something is wrong. If you are always on the receiving side of being warned, being taught, and that's how you see your, your, that's your place, right? I'm just there, and if I do something wrong, just tell me, okay? Then you've misunderstood your place here. We are to admonish one another. One another. Do not leave this work for a few. You would be wrong in doing that. You understand? There are others. I'll just read them. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Do you know that when you sing with thankfulness in your heart to God, it is instructive to the person next to you? Did you know that? Why is it? Because you're singing the truth of God's word, believing it, letting it resonate within you as true, and the person next to you sees you doing that with thankfulness and joy, and they say what? I don't have that, and I should. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your love. Thank you for loving Christ the way that you do. Thank you for being joyful the way that you are. I want, I want more of that. So I will just remind you of that. When we sing, it should be... Now, everyone's disposition is different, right? What is my disposition? Uh, frumpy, right? <laughs> That's just my disposition. Should I work to change that? I, yeah, I, I should. I'm trying to, Okay. That's just, I've said it for years, that's my face, that's how it looks, okay? I'm not mad at anybody. But, does your facial expression necessarily communicate the truth of what's happening in your heart? No, it doesn't always. Because although externally we may look a certain way, how do we know what's going on in our heart? Now, should we, should we put effort in to taking what is in here and making it match out here? I think we should. I think we should put effort into that. I think we should try, right? We want other people to see what's happening internally. And part of that comes through when we sing together, okay? Just want to encourage you with that. Romans 15, 14. This is the last one here. We'll move on to the next verse in our passage. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, that you are filled with knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. Do you see that? So why was Paul thankful for the church in Rome? Because they had knowledge and they were able to instruct one another. So what precedes us instructing one another? Knowledge. Otherwise, how are we instructing one another? Based on how you feel? Have you ever instructed someone simply based on your feelings about something? Yep. You have. That's common. It's a common human experience. Okay? How should we be instructing? Based on what scripture has said, right? There is a standard, and that's what we instruct according to that standard. That's how we instruct. That's our measure, okay? We'll move on from that. So we get what he's writing for. He's not writing to make them ashamed, but to admonish them as what? As his beloved children, Okay, so that's the next idea. Paul brings admonition. He's not bringing shame to them. And how is he doing it? He's doing it as a father, not as a guide. And that's what the text says. Look at verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Countless guides. The, the Greek says, although you have 10,000 guides. That's what it says. But it means many, right? You have countless you have unending guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. What's the distinction? What's the difference between those two? And then he says, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Here's the difference. The difference is between what was called at that time a pedagogue versus a father. What was a pedagogue? A pedagogue of the day was a hired person, many times a slave or servant, who their job was to walk around with someone else's children and teach them, 
not just about what we might think as rudimentary like uh, math, read, things like that. That's true, but also just about life and character and the way you behave. And you would get corrected. This person would follow you around, right? You do something wrong and you, know, you get smacked. Don't do that. Now, how were they disciplining? Harshly, yes, well, it depends on the person, but they were doing it as a job function. It was their job to discipline them, right? I'm just doing my job, right? Imagine, I think you know better, but just imagine if I viewed what I'm doing simply as my job. That's it. I'm just going to do what I'm doing, and I'm going to get my paycheck, and I'm going to move on, and job done, move on to the next one, uh, job done. And I'm just doing it, and I get paid, and we move on. Is, is that the idea? Is that what Paul's saying is going on with him? He's saying, no, I didn't, I didn't come in. That's not the point. He says, that, that, that's not why or how I've come to you. You have countless pedagogues in Christ, those who can hold you accountable, but you don't have many fathers. And this is how I'm approaching you right now as a father. I'm coming to you as someone who is motivated out of love, right? A father's love for their child. So what he saw as valuable for them was for them to know what? That they are loved. Does that mean something to you? To know that you are loved? And he's specifically referencing the love of a father to a child. None of us fathers in the room are perfect fathers that love our spouses or our wives or our church or our savior as we should, right? That's, that's just not true. We don't do that. It's not perfect. And so maybe we have a flawed picture of fa- Paul's fatherly love and rebuke for them. I did for a long time. had just a wrong picture here of what it means for God to be father, right? And what Paul is saying here as father is he says, I became your father. How do you become someone's father in Christ? He became their spiritual father, Right? So as their spiritual father, Paul desires that the church press on to maturity with a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what he wants. How did he become that? Well, he's saying that when I came among you and I stayed there for a while and I preached the gospel to you, you became believers while I was there. And so in that sense, you were born. And isn't that what we mean in the terminology we use? Someone is born again. You are born again. How? What kind of birth? A spiritual birth. And who was there who led you into that? Brought you into the world, right? Although he didn't make the life, he was there, right, to, to welcome them in. That is Paul. He says, I became that spiritual father to you. And so I have a certain kind of love for you that other people just don't have. I was there when it happened, and I love you. And I want you to hear me, and I want you to know what my love is for you. And out of love, as a father, I'm concerned for you and what you're doing. I'm not just going to let you do whatever you want. That's not love. That is not love. I'm going to hold you to a standard I know to be true. And that's what his loving fatherly characteristic, that's what comes out. I'm holding you accountable to that standard. Now, I'm going to do it with gentleness now, but if you don't hear me, as he says, what does he say? Verse 21, if not, the rod is coming next. 
and we know what that means. No one likes the rod, right? Can we agree? <laughs> no, thank you. But that's what he says is coming next. So I'm appealing to you out of love with gentleness. Hear me. I'm begging you to hear me. Here's your opportunity. So if you don't hear me, understand that the rod is coming next. So that's his motivation, right? Spiritual father. He desires that the church press on to maturity. Why? Because he loves them. That's what he wants for them, maturity. Doesn't a father want for his children maturity? Right? That's what we want. Press on to maturity and flourish in this life. And what does Paul mean for that, for his spiritual children? What does it mean to press on and flourish in this life? It means to become mature in Christ. That's what it means. And so that's what he wants for his children. Now, we already talked about this before. Um, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, I could not address you as spiritual people, but people of the flesh, infants in Christ. As his spiritual children, they were not growing up as they should. They were remaining children, immature. And that's what he, not, not what he wanted for them. You want your children to remain immature? Is that what you want? That sounds fun. So, no thank you. You want your children to mature, right? Isn't that what you want? That's what Paul wanted for his spiritual children as well. Okay, so let's move on. Next, verse 16. So I urge you then, knowing that I'm writing these things to admonish you and knowing that I'm doing it as a father to a child, I urge you, here's what I want you to do, be imitators of me. That's what he wants. That's, that's, and that's, that's the end goal. Be, be like me. And this is why I sent or have sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. But some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Okay. So let's look a little bit about this. What happens next? Paul desires what? Imitation and power, not arrogance and talk. What does he actually want from them? As he admonishes them, as he does it as a loving father with gentleness, what does he hope is going to happen? That they might imitate him with power, we'll talk about that, and that they might not be arrogant people who are just simply those who talk. Those who are just talkers and arrogant, but actually someone who imitates what they should and in power. You know, Paul has another child, and that child is named Timothy. Timothy is unlike the children in Corinth. The whole church in Corinth is an infant in Christ. But he has another child, a spiritual child, and his name is Timothy. Timothy is not an infant in Christ. Timothy is mature, and he knows how to imitate his spiritual father, who is Paul. He has learned from Paul. He knows how to teach. He knows how to behave. In all these things, he knows. Paul wants his ways in Christ to be known, and there's someone who knows Paul's ways, and that person is Timothy. And he says, this is why I have sent you, Timothy. He's coming. He's about to arrive, and this is why I've sent him. Because although I can't come right now, I'm going to send the next best, Timothy who knows my ways in Christ, because I want you to know my ways in Christ, and the best way for you to know them is by example and someone actually being there present among you. To simply write a letter to you is not enough. 
What are Paul's ways in Christ? Let's just read briefly what Paul tells Timothy. Paul's ways in Christ, somewhat of a list is given. We referenced this back on Wednesday, 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. Listen to what it says. So just be reminded, this is Paul writing a letter to Timothy, right? His spiritual child who has matured in the faith, who he's sending to Corinth. He says to Timothy, you, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, and yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who live, uh, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. What does the believer need to press on to maturity? They need the word of God. And for Paul, he's saying, yes, you need the word of God, but you also need to see how it plays out in life. So two things. What do we expect Timothy to do when he arrives in Corinth? I think no less than two things, right? As we see here. One, he will exemplify Paul's behaviors as Paul exemplifies Christ. He will do that among them. Timothy has learned Paul's ways, not simply his teachings. He's not there because they didn't have Zoom, right? He's not saying, you just go teach them. He's saying, go and, and give them my ways in Christ. This is, yes, what I believe, but also how I behave, what I do. And, but the second part is also true. He will teach them what he has learned in the scriptures from Paul as Paul was instructed by Jesus himself. A great teacher to have among them, wouldn't you say? So according to Paul, Timothy has matured in his knowledge and in his behavior, and this is the kind of person that he is sending out to another church. And I think that, that just as a passing thought, that's a good example for us to keep in mind and follow. Those who are sent out should meet a standard. Paul didn't just send anybody, did he? But he sent someone who had character qualifications. And he says, I teach these things everywhere and in every church. This wasn't just for this church at this time. Paul was teaching these things that every church in every place might learn the same things. There's a standard a standard of conduct for the Christian life. And, and this is what maybe can become blurry for the unbelieving world, is that you have this church and they do that thing. And you have this church and this denomination and they believe these things and they do those things. And these do those, and this like, there is all this distinction. This is not the way that it was intended to be. And so you might say, well, there's proof that it's not true. I, I disagree. I think there's proof that humans are sinful. And there's proof that people can be obstinate. And that those who have no place in the membership of the church because of their obstinance go and make their own church. That, right. And that's happened for centuries. Does it mean that there are not those who have been called by God, saved by God, called to imitate him 
It doesn't change anything about that. It just shows how fractured our world truly is by sin. And thank God, in the midst of our messiness, we have a Savior who can save us who are yet sinners. Because although God saves us, we are not perfected in the flesh. Right? So what report does Paul want to hear back from Timothy, you think? He sends Timothy to his little infants, right, in Christ. What report does he want to get back? That they heard it and that they're growing up and that they're doing well, right? Just imagine that you have children somewhere and they're, they're infants and you're, you, you've sent someone that's the next best, right? And they can teach them everything that you know in all your ways because you want them, what, to imitate you, right? When we say, well, I don't know if I want my children to imitate me, actually, um, maybe the best parts of me, please imitate, right? But do you get that idea? How are they doing? Are they imitating the ways? You know that Christians were first called what? The way. Do you know that? Uh, capital W, the way, because there is a way to salvation. There are ways in Christ, right? There's multiple ways, but all the ways are in Christ. He is the door. He's the way in, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life, Right? There are ways in Christ that we must come to terms with and know and conduct ourselves appropriately. He wants to secure for them pure, undivided devotion to their Lord. That's what he wants for them. So a person who is prideful and arrogant and has a big talk, how does he feel about that child? How would you feel about your prideful, arrogant child? Right. Do you remember being a prideful, arrogant child yourself? Yep. <laughs> and your parents loved you for it, you know? I, I don't think so. Can you draw the parallel, though? You have people back at home who are nothing but prideful, arrogant, and all they do is talk a big talk. They have no walk. They don't actually live these things out. He says, no, thank you. When I come, by the way, I'm going to find out the talk of these arrogant people. Yes, their talk, but not only that, what I really am concerned with is their power. What power is at work here? Is there any power at work? What does he mean by power? What power are we talking about? He says, Some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk. That's not the primary concern here, uh, but what power is behind it? What is that? For, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That's the power he's talking about. Because does it mean that we shouldn't have talk? We should just be silent when we become Christians. No, we do have a talk, but the whole point is he knows that they have empty talk. So he says, I'm not concerned so much for that, so much as I already know what's going on, so demonstrate your power to me, and they don't have any. Now, what kind of power do you think he's talking about? Um, you, could, you could think, well, he wants them to show miraculous signs and wonders, right? Show me if it God is at work in you. Prophesy. <laughs> do you think that's what he means? No, that's not what he means. What is the kingdom of God? Um, kingdom of God, according in, in, in Paul's theology here, okay, if we just do a survey of Paul's theology of the kingdom, that's a pretty short study, actually. Paul doesn't reference the kingdom very much. 
14 times he uses the word kingdom even. But when Paul does talk about the kingdom of God, what does he mean? It is something that Jesus has inaugurated, that is started, and will consummate later, that is bring to its final end, okay? He has started it, and it will come to a, uh, a full realization later. So there's a now and later aspect to the kingdom of God in Paul's theology. It is something that believers will inherit. That is, he talks about those who are to inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that you have inherited it already. You will inherit it later. That's the later aspect. But what about the now aspect of the kingdom? It is something that consists of transformational power in the here and now. That is, if you belong to the kingdom of God, the transformational power of that kingdom will be evidenced in your life. You cannot say, I belong to the kingdom of God and have no transformational power at work in your life. It's not true. That's empty talk and that's arrogance. Show me the transformational power of God in your life. And what does that look like? Adherence to the standard of teaching of the scriptures. That is showing that you have a life that has moved from darkness to light. That's what this is. The transformed life. And if someone is not keeping in step with that transformed life, you bring it to their attention and you do it with gentleness. And if they don't hear you, it must get harsher because you can't just leave them alone because you do love them after all, right? And how do you love them? In Christ. And if we love them in Christ, we want them to be imitators of the truth of God, right? All this, all this comes together, doesn't it? So all those who are to inherit the kingdom of God will later, that is the later aspect, will display its transformational power now. Understand what that's, what I'm, what I'm saying there? All those who are to inherit the kingdom of God, that is later, the inheritance, you will today be displaying its transformational power. So just stop for a second and say to yourself, am I to inherit the kingdom of God when I, when I die? If that is true, and if you answer yes, then say, and does my life reflect that power now? Where does it not reflect that transformational power in subjection to the Lord himself? And you need to come to terms with that and you need to work on it. Because if your life is, if you are to inherit, that is, that kingdom, then what does that mean for you now? What is this transformational power? Of course, we know this is God at work. Colossians 1, 9 through 14 speaks to this. Okay, we'll touch on it just briefly here. Just a couple more thoughts this morning. Colossians 1, 9 through 14 says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Is that how you would describe your life today? You are walking in a manner of the Lord that is fully pleasing to him, fully. 
That is, you are bearing fruit in every good work. You are increasing in the knowledge of God. You are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So back up and just acknowledge that we are a work in progress. We are not all that we should be. We are changing. We are in that process. That process is sanctification, becoming more holy. We are continually working to that end according to what? According to the power at work within us. And before you think that this is a huge discouragement, the text specifically says that although this is true and that it's working itself out, you have already been qualified to share in the inheritance that is to come. That's what it says, verse 12, or the text I just read there. So while we are, we don't feel qualified. Do you feel qualified to inherit the kingdom of God? You shouldn't. It's kind of a mark of maturity that you shouldn't feel qualified. But should you know that you are qualified? Yes, that is also a mark of maturity. You should not feel qualified, but you should know with certainty that you are qualified in Christ. Does that make sense? That's good news. Okay, so a summary thought here. We'll move on to our last point. That God has designed his church in such a way that we all, each fulfilling our specific role, teach one another. We hold one another accountable to our standard of belief, thought, and conduct that is befitting those who belong to God's kingdom. Is there a specific standard of conduct, thought, belief that is befitting those who belong to the kingdom and will inherit the kingdom? The answer to that is yes. And we should be making a distinction between thoughts, beliefs, behaviors that are not in line with the kingdom of God. And we ought to be concerned out of love for one another when our lives are not marked by this reality. Right? Are you concerned? I don't know. The look on your face says, I don't know. Verse 21, let's look at it. I can't make you concerned, so I depend on the Spirit to make you concerned. We see in the text that you should be, and I hope that by the power of God and his conviction that you will be, and that if you are concerned, it will cause you to act. Verse 21, so what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? That's the question. So here's your issue. I'm gently rebuking you as a father. I want you to hear me. We should come about this gently at first, but I want you to know that this is serious, even though I'm being gentle. Sometimes I fool myself with my own children, right? I want you to know I'm serious, so I'm going to be harsh right away, right? Because it seems as though when I'm gentle, you don't think I'm serious. Does this communicate? So, although that's, uh, that's a work in progress for me as well, right? We, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of believing that because we should be speaking with gentleness, but out of seriousness, out of concern. The two can go together, okay? The text is telling us that the two can go together. However hard it might be for us to believe that reality, right? We can be gentle and serious all at the same time. And we know that we should do this and that it, you say, but it's not going to work. It's not up to you to make it work. It's not up to you to make it work. It's up to God. It is up to you to be faithful. That's it, okay? So, shall I come to you 
with a rod. Do you want your father to come to you with a rod? Or would you rather go ahead and just do what he's asking you to do in gentleness first and spare me the rod? Isn't that what we want? That's what I want. I guess I'll just answer myself. That's what I want. I would rather not have the rod. I just want to listen to you right away so that the rod doesn't have to come. I'm going to end by taking us to, what, to one passage, um, and that's in Hebrews 12. So just turn there with me. We're going to end right here. Just some final thoughts. That's the question. That's the question. The fatherly rebuke has come, and the question they're left lingering with is, so what's it going to be? Are you going to behave and change your ways? I'm talking gently here. Or do I need to come with a rod and shame you publicly in order for you to learn this lesson? Both understand are loving. You get that, right? We want at all costs to not have to be part of the harsh reality. You don't want to be the giver of it, and you don't want to be the receiver of it. Do we all agree? I don't want to have to be harsh, and so some people just never are then. I don't want to have to be harsh, but I'm going to be, and you just are never gentle. We need to find our place in in a balance of these ideas and understanding that we have a job to do. We are to hold one another accountable. You can't say no to that. You hear me? You are not allowed, according to the word of God, to say, I will not hold another believer accountable to sin. You're not allowed to do that. We all have a job in that. Don't neglect it. We all need to be doing that for one another. It is loving. But it doesn't mean you have to be harsh. But it also means that sometimes you need to be. So how will we end here? Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 15. This is talking about God's discipline on the believer. Is, so when we relate this, we're like, well, is that how God is? This is how Paul is, but Paul was clearly out of his mind. Should we follow Paul? Well, did he say, imitate me in this? Uh, yes. We are to imitate Paul's ways. Does that include what he's doing right then? I would say, yes, it does. It includes everything that he's doing and saying, his way of life in Christ. We are to imitate this. In other places, he tells them specifically to do this. Is this how God is? That's my question. Does God discipline his children? Or is he only loving and gentle? And he's like, I know, but that's just how they are, you know? I try talking to Linda all the time, but that's just how she is, you know? I try, I just... Is that how God is? Right? That's the question. Oh, just let her be. Or is God concerned? And does he see this as a serious matter? It says, are you looking at it with me? Did you turn there in your Bible? Hebrews 12, 7. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you how? Each of you in this room, each of all of us, whether male or female, God is treating you how? As a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Pause. Well, I'm a good example. Me. I didn't have discipline. So this was confusing to me as a new believer. 
Um, but we have to understand the idea given here, don't we? He's saying, what good father who's doing things appropriately does not discipline his son? He's saying that, well, okay, the reader is supposed to say, okay, well, I'm with you so far, right? And if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you are a son, then your father disciplines you, right? Now, all we have to do so far is say, okay, I'm with you, right? What are you saying? Um, if you are left without discipline, that means you don't have a father who loves you. Okay? Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. Why? Why? That we might share in his holiness. Now, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. To who? To those who have been trained by it. Is it possible that God disciplines and there are those who go untrained by it? Just think with me, you ever disciplined your child and that child did not learn? Oh, well, certainly. Were you ever disciplined and you just didn't learn? You know? Uh, okay, so we get it, don't we? There are spiritual children in this camp as well. You're just not getting it. I have to, you have to keep being disciplined for this over and over. But for those who actually are trained by it, it yields what? It yields fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Therefore, he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, why are your hands drooping and why are your knees weak? Because you've been disciplined. That's why. And discipline is hard. Do you know that? Have you felt that? Is the discipline of God, he's like, oh, it's like, you know, let, let mommy discipline me because I, I like her disciplines. Let daddy discipline me because I like, because he's always just a joke, right? Or please don't let mommy discipline me. What, can you do it instead, please? Or please don't let daddy do it. Please, can you come up with something instead so I don't have to face? What, what kind of disciplinarian is God? He is a perfect disciplinarian. He disciplines for our good perfectly, accurately, and consistently. He will not leave you alone. He is a good father to you. He is not going to let his children run amok doing whatever they want. If an earthly father doesn't do that, how much more your heavenly father? So maybe this morning I'm, I'm speaking to you, maybe your knees are weak from discipline. And maybe... You feel that weakness of what God has brought about you. I don't know, maybe. If that were the case, what are you called to do? It says, well, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. Why? So that what is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Right? Don't just wallow in your self-pity because the discipline of God is on your life. Stand up and do something with your life already. Get it together. Walk in righteousness. Repent. Go forward. 
If not, then the things that are just kind of aching right now are going to be permanently broken. And that's not good. So, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Who is that call to? See to it. It's here. It's, it's us. You. See to it. See to who? To one another. Why? Because I love them and I'm concerned for them. So that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So when you're not in step, when your life is not in step with God's rule over your life, is there a desire in you? Listen, this is my, my last point of application here, and we're, we're through. When your life is not in step with God's rule over your life, is there a desire in you for confrontation, submission, confession, and repentance? Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready for the day when another believer approaches you and gently admonishes you? What are you going to do in that moment? I don't have to deal with this. I'm out of here. That's one option. And you go to another church, and that church is okay with how you live and what you believe. You can find that church. I guarantee it. But the other side is also true. When you see a believer who is not in step with the word of God, are you ready to be seriously concerned and to gently rebuke them, to admonish them, to teach them? Are you ready? Are you ready? Because whose job is this? This is our job to admonish one another. Does that sound serious? It is very serious because God is serious about holiness and he cares for his people as a loving father should. Right? We have a good God, don't we? We have a loving father, don't we? And thank God that although his children are not perfect, he loves us anyway in Christ. Did you know that? You will never be perfect. Let that weight fall from you. And you can never have the love of God more than you have it now in Christ Jesus. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, you have all the favor of God on your life. And nothing can get rid of that favor of God on your life. Now, he may discipline you, but it is because he loves you so much. He may have one of his children bring that discipline. One of his children may be the agent of that discipline. But it's because he loves you. You understand? We'll be finished today. Uh, we'll continue on next week, and we'll sing one more song together before we close today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us as your children, for all who have called on you in faith, for all who have repented of their sins and acknowledge that without the forgiveness of our sins that there is only punishment to pay. That is not discipline. That is punishment, payment. We thank you that you have absorbed all of that payment that we owe you in Christ Jesus and that not only did you leave us at zero, but you by your grace have given us all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. 
Thank you for your love over us as your children. Thank you for your patience with us. Help us as your children to learn to love your children in the way that you have taught us. We pray in Jesus' name together. Amen.